0: You're listening to the Belmar Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Belmar or to see our upcoming events, visit belmarchurch.com. We're starting a new sermon series. And uh, there's a phrase that is at least five or 600 years old. Uh, that's the first time it appeared in print. And the phrase is, all roads lead to Rome. Now, you may have heard that phrase before. Um, I've been on a lot of roads. I've never been to Rome. Uh, so I'm not sure that that uh, is an accurate phrase. But it was a phrase that became popular because of the preeminence of the city of Rome. And especially when we look at the time period in which the book of Romans in the New Testament was written. And that's where we're going to begin this series this year is in the book of Romans, and we're calling the series "The Just Shall Live by Faith," and we're going to cover that passage this morning. Uh, but there's a lot to unpack there, and it's uh, Romans is a unique letter in the New Testament. It is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome. Paul and I had something in common at least when he wrote this letter, which is neither one of us have ever been to Rome. Um, That's probably where the similarities end. Eventually, Paul would make his way to Rome, but when he wrote this letter, he had never been to Rome. And probably around A.D. 57, scholars, some will argue 56, some will argue 58. I'm not sure that it matters for our study in, in this book, but around A.D. 57, Paul sits down and writes a letter to a church in a city in which he had never been, and yet it was a significant church in a significant city, and it became a significant part of our scripture. Paul was at a unique place in his life and in his ministry. He had been a follower of Jesus and had been in the ministry for about 20 years during this time. He had completed uh, his three major missionary journeys and his intention was to go to Spain, to go to Europe and to begin to preach the gospel there and on his way he would stop in Rome. And so he writes this letter partly by way of introducing himself. He also writes because there were many rumors and, and, and uh, false teachings about what Paul taught. He was a, a well known figure in the church. There were those who didn't care for Paul and who would say things against him. And so he writes sort of to introduce himself. And in that process, he he expands upon what he believes as the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not only that, but another thing that makes this letter interesting is Paul would often write to churches that he ministered to or that he himself had started. And so he'll write to congregations he's familiar with, and he would often address specific problems. In receiving the Lord's Supper this morning, we read some verses out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul wrote a letter, two letters actually, to the church at Corinth. That's why we have 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians specifically is a letter that's almost all correction. He's correcting errors in the church. One of those errors was how they took the Lord's Supper. So he devotes the better part of chapter 11 to how we ought to receive the Lord's Supper, what it means, and and what the process is. But in writing to the church at Rome, it's not so much corrective as it is instructive. And so let's get into it this morning. Romans chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul, a bondservant or a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according. To the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul gives us several things here. First of all, in verse number one, he introduces himself. And he introduces himself in kind of a unique way. He says, first of all, Paul, a bondservant. Paul, a a indentured servant of Jesus Christ. Now he goes on and, and says that he separated uh, from the go- for the gospel that he's called to be an apostle. But before that, he says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. He, he understands that any acclaim that he has, anything that has been accomplished is only through the grace of Jesus Christ in his life. And so he begins by introducing himself as a servant. And then he says in verse number one, separated to the gospel of God. And then he expands upon this in verses two through four. He says, which he promised before through his prophets and the holy scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. He, the center of the gospel is, of course, Jesus, and it's interesting what Paul does here, and we're not take a lot of time this morning to look at it, but the church at Rome was very unusual in a couple of ways. One, and, and again, we'll get more into this because Paul gets more into it in the book of Romans, but the church started like a lot of churches in those days, in that Jews And believers in Jehovah God accepted Jesus Christ as the Messiah and then coming to Rome began to worship Jesus in that way. What had happened though previously is that all Jews were expelled out of Rome. And so there was a time when the young church at Rome was only made up of Gentiles, non-Jews. And then at the time of the writing of Romans, Jews had now been allowed back into the city of Rome. And so it was a church that had seen kind of some turnover in leadership. You can imagine that the Jews, believing that Jesus was the Messiah, and, and Jewish belief, Old Testament belief, would have a tremendous influence on all churches at that time, and they did. But then you had a church where that Jewish influence was removed, and so you had these young believers in Jesus, and they were looking at the gospel. Paul will address later in the book of Romans that reconciliation between Jew and Gentile and and the importance of that. And And I look forward to to talking about that in the future. But he says that Jesus as Messiah was prophesied in the Old Testament, and then he said it was demonstrated by the resurrection from the dead. That Jesus Christ demonstrated the power of all he claimed when he rose again from the dead. And so he talks about the gospel. And then he talks about his own ministry. He says, through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. And then he, he lets us know who he's writing to to those, to all those who are in Rome. And so we see a couple of things here. First of all, he says, through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. The first thing that I see here is that uh, we see the grace of ministry. That that one of the things that God does for us in in saving us is allows us to serve. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1 says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. The book of Romans has many historical significance associated to it. One of those is the Reformation. I read a brief biography of Martin Luther this past week, and um, it talked about this idea that Romans had a huge influence in his life because Martin Luther was was a monk. He was a priest, and at that time, the the priesthood was considered sort of this um, elite status with God. If you if you wanted to ensure your salvation. That was one of the ways to do it was to to serve him in in this full uh, life ministry. And yet Martin Luther, in reading Romans and other parts of the New Testament, came to understand that all believers were priests before God. That we didn't need an intermediary between us and God, some kind of man who could disseminate God's truth and who could take our messages to God, but rather, Jesus Christ does that for us. He sits at the right hand of uh, of the Father and makes intercession for all believers. And so, that's a tremendous truth for us, that, that we can go directly to Christ, directly to God with our needs, and we can also hear directly from God. But here's the thing about that. It also means that God has a unique direct calling for you as well. It's not just for a priest or a pastor to serve God, it's for all those who know Christ as their savior to be to walk worthy because we have a calling. God has a ministry for all of us not only that but we see here that true faith always results in obedience notice what he says in verse number 5 through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name in john chapter 14 jesus would say this In verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. He expands on this in verse 21 when he says this. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by me, by my Father. And I will love him and manifest or make known myself to him. You see, to walk by faith, if the just are to live by faith, Faith involves obedience, because if we trust God, if our faith is in God, then we're going to follow God's commands. If we don't follow his commands, then can we say that we're really trusting him? See, we can be given instructions about how to do a task, how to accomplish something, and then we can decide whether we're going to receive those instructions or not. When I was a kid, my father would often try to teach me different things. My father was a carpenter by trade. He was very good with woodworking. And, and he would, I I can remember, I can remember him talking to me about a tape measure and and three-fourths and five-eighths and some-sixteenths, and and I can remember my eyes glazing over and just, you know, this sounds a lot like school and math. One of my regrets is I wish I'd have listened to my dad more. Because if you want something built with wood, I am not your guy. Now, if if we're going to cover it with drywall, it's probably Okay. You know, if nobody's actually going to see how beat up the boards get as I'm driving a nail, we'll probably be. I can make it sturdy. And often I can make it straight. But it's never pretty. It's never pretty. But my dad would teach me. And he would say, you should do this, and then you should do this, and you should do this. But, you know, I was incredible incredibly bright and in, 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 in you know, just, I, I had so many ideas. And sometimes I didn't believe that I had to take all the steps that he told me I had to take. I thought, well, I can figure this out. And it typically didn't end well. I didn't put my faith in what he was telling me to do. I thought I knew another way. I thought I could find a a better way or figure it out on my own. That's what we do with God. We say, oh, I, I believe in God. I have faith in Him. And God says, listen, here's some principles by which you ought to live your life. If you will do this, it will be good for you. You will be blessed. This is what you ought to do. And we go, I love you, God, but... That's not conventional wisdom. Well, other people are telling me this. But to really live by faith is to obey what God tells us to do. That's why Jesus would make such a statement as he does in the gospel of John, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's not a, that, at first blush, that might sound like a statement of ignorance, or of arrogance. But it's not because it's coming from God himself. He knows the right way. He knows the best way. If we will follow his commandments, we will always end up better off than if we do it on our own. He doesn't say that because he's arrogant. He says it because he loves us. And true faith always results in obedience. Paul goes on in Romans chapter 1 to kind of expand upon his plans, his intentions. He says in verse 8, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. That your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making requests if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. And so Paul gives some thanksgiving. He 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 compliments the church and their reputation and the things that they have done. He lets the church know that he has been praying for them, praying for them. And then he encourages them, and he says that I want to come and I want to preach. I want to to have some fruit in your midst. I want to try to impart a spiritual gift to you. But he also says that, that there would be mutual benefit. He wants to come and and benefit from fellowship with other believers. I think this is a tremendous reminder of what the church is to be. The church is not coming together to hear what the pastor has to say this week and hopefully it's not too boring and, and something that I can use. And, and and I work to not be too boring and hopefully have something that you can use. But it's about more than that. It's about more than preaching. It's about the m- mutual benefit that takes place when we come together as followers of Jesus Christ. And I want us to get to these last two verses this morning because they're really the crux of the matter and, and the theme which we're going to try to have for the whole series. Paul says this. He said in verse 15, I'm ready to preach the gospel. And in verse 16, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first, and also for the Greek. For it is the righteousness of in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul first says this. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He said, listen, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I look to his death and his resurrection as as the sacrifice that that allows me to have a relationship with God. I I look to Jesus and he is, he's, he's he's my messiah. There was a time when when Paul, of course, persecuted the church, persecuted those who followed after Jesus. But now he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And he says this, it is the power of God. The story of Jesus shows us the power of God. And as I thought about that phrase, over the last couple of weeks as I've been preparing for this message and for this series, I thought about if there's ever a time we need the power of God evident, it's now. Man, we desperately need it in our lives. We need it in our families. And we need it in the church. I recognize that for much of the world, they look at the church and say, you know, those things are old-fashioned, those things are out of date. those things are not in step with. But listen, only in the gospel is, is God's power evident. That's our only hope. And so Paul says, "I'm not ashamed." First Corinthians chapter 1 verses 18 and 19, Paul would write and say, "For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing." But to us who are becoming saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent." It's the power of the gospel that we need to look to, to transform our hearts and our lives, to transform our our families and and our friends, to transform our church, to transform our community that can only happen in the power of the gospel. And today I think we look in so many other places. I read this past week that uh, the first on-road, completely autonomous test of a semi-truck took place in Arizona. I don't know if you read about this, but a truck, uh, an 18-wheeler drove from Tucson to Phoenix. Nobody was in the cab and nobody um, was, uh, was, was able to, to control. It just went. And I thought, you know, depending on your view of the, the future, you're either like, that's how it starts. And then the Terminators come and we're all wiped out. Or maybe you think that's great. In the future, technology is going to be so much, it's, it's going to help our lives in so many ways. And, you know, it's, it's probably not quite as great as the people that, that might paint a, a super rosy picture make it out. It's probably not going to be as bad as, you know, some sci-fi horror picture might tell us. Or maybe it's worse. I don't, I don't know. Here's what I know. That's not where our hope is. That's not going to fix everything about our society. It's not going to make all of our lives better. Human beings are constantly finding ways to mess up. Technology just creates new opportunities for us to do that. But hope is found in the power of the gospel. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5 says, Who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Not only do we see the power of the gospel, but we see the revelation of it. For in it, Romans 1.17 says, The righteousness of God is revealed. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1 says, Behold what manner of love, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. It's interesting, isn't it, the things that we look to to sort of confirm the love and the, and the majesty of God. Like, if you enjoy the outdoors, I can think back to certain like moments that I've had. I can remember getting up on a, on a crisp, cool morning, camping in the mountains. And the sun's just coming up, and you know it's, it's just a perfect day. And you look around at the beauty, and you think, what an amazing God we serve. And, and I believe that God shows his beauty through creation. But here's the problem with only looking to that. Sometimes creation is horrible. We saw that this week as winds whip up fires that decimate and destroy. Nobody looks at that and and immediately wants to praise God. We can thank God for the amount of protection that he gave, but it was horrible to watch, was it not? Creation can reflect the beauty and handiwork of God. Scripture tells us that. But you know where God's love is shown? In the giving of his son, Jesus. That is where we see the love of God. And when we know Jesus Christ as our Savior, then we experience God's love in an amazing way. Even when circumstances in this world seem overwhelming, we know that God loves us because of his Son and the relationship that we can have with God through Jesus Christ. And so God reveals his gospel through his Son. And then he says in verse 17 from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Galatians chapter 3, Paul would write in verse number 10, For as many as, uh, as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them but that no one is justified by the law and the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. He goes on and talks about this, but it's this idea that God first in the Old Testament gave the law. And, and you understand that man has a desire to justify himself. I want to think that I'm pretty good And so God gave the law. It started with the Ten Commandments. You you shall not kill. You shouldn't take the Lord's name in vain. You shouldn't bear false witness. You shouldn't steal. You shouldn't covet. These things that we we know and we understand. And then there there was even more laws that were given. Jesus came and he... Interpreted the law, he expanded upon the law in a way that really was condemning for us. Because we go to things like, thou shalt not murder. And you think, well, man, I've never, I've never murdered anybody. And Jesus said, if you hate someone in your heart, you're guilty of murder. The commandment was, thou shalt not commit adultery. You think, well, I've never cheated on my wife. I've been faithful in in my marriage vows. But Jesus came and said, if you've looked and lusted after a woman in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. And the truth is, no one is justified by the law. We don't look to ourselves and say, well, I'm good enough. Well, I think when God weighs out all my good and all my bad, I'm hoping that the scales will tip in my favor, and I think that I'll be okay. That's not the way it works. You're not going to be okay. You say, preacher, you don't know me. No, but I know what the Scripture says, which is none are righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We fall short of God's standard. It's not a balanced scale. It's a pass fail. Are you holy or are you a sinner? And so we're not justified by the law, but the just live by faith. And as we go through Romans, I just want to plant this seed in your mind. You know what we often do as Christians? We accept by faith the forgiveness of God in our life. We accept by faith that we can't have a relationship with God. And so only through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, Can we have forgiveness of our sins? Can we have a relationship with God? We accept that by faith. But then if we're not careful, we start to say, but this is how you follow God. This is how you justify yourself. And it's almost like we forget that we can't be justified by that that there are not a set of rules that we can keep that can make us acceptable to God, that can make us spiritual. It doesn't mean that there's no standards, but it means that the just constantly live and walk and exist by faith. That's why Paul would start this letter by saying a bondservant. One who is completely dependent on his master for everything. That's faith. That's us. I'm excited for us to go through this book of Romans. I'm excited for us to see the importance that faith has in justifying us before God, the relationship that we can have before God, the standing that God in his grace has given to us, but also practically how we can walk and how we can live in this world and live before God in a way in which he's pleased. And it's not about meeting a bunch of rules. It's about continuing to live by faith in him. Maybe you have some questions about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Man, I would love to talk to you after this service and and just talk a little bit about really how we can put our faith and our trust in Jesus. Maybe you have some other questions about anything we talked about today. I'll be out in the lobby after this service, and I would love to talk with you more about that. Let's pray. Today, Dear God, Lord, we're so thankful for this book of, of Romans, this letter written to this church long ago that has application to our own hearts and our own lives. God, I pray that you would help us to understand the importance of living and walking with you by faith. Yes, we will obey you. Yes, we will follow your commands, not because we try to justify ourselves, but because we, we believe in what you say. Because we want to please you, because we love you. Thank you, God. I just pray that you would bless us as we go from this place today. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.